Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. I want to start right off. I'll, I'll remind you kind of where we are and what we've been talking about here in a second, but but I do want to start right off with Proverbs 25, verse 14. Uh, it's a It's a really... Uh, kind of a precious proverb. It's really cool. The imagery is great. The meaning is cool. The way he writes it is really good. And I want us to spend just a second thinking about it because it will lead us into the foundation that I want to talk about tonight. So Proverbs 25, 14, Solomon, uh, if this is by Solomon, I don't actually recall, but one of the, one of the proverb writers says this. He says, like a snow-cooled drink at harvest time is a trustworthy messenger to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master. So he starts off by saying that there's just that that when you send somebody to do something and you can trust that they're going to do it, their faithfulness is refreshing, like a cold drink on a really hot day when you're out working in the field. And then it goes on and he says this, like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. And so there's clearly a contrast here. This is a, a very Hebraic idea called um, antithetical parallelism. It just means they, they take two ideas and they strengthen them. They strengthen one idea, really, by showing you both the, the positive perspective of it and the negative perspective of it. So what we have is I think we do have a, a, a contrast between the refreshment from someone who does what, what they're supposed to do, the faithfulness of that person, how that was refreshing to us. But it's, but it's even stronger. There's a progressiveness to this parallelism, too, to this idea. Yes, indeed it is. There's a, there's a strength to it. Um, and so when he starts with, it's just sort of what, what you might think of when you think of the idea of promises that are made. Promises are really important things. Faithfulness is an important thing. It matters. Will people do what they say they will do? It matters to us. And promises matter even more. And so if you think about the idea of the first one is kind of an implicit promise, right? You have a servant. He didn't specifically say, I'm going to do this specific task and I'm going to do it in this way and do it well. But just by nature of being your messenger, that's what you expect him to do. There's an implicit promise that that's who he is. There's an expectation. And when somebody does what they are expected to do, when somebody follows through on that implicit promise, that's really awesome. I think there's implicit promises just in being human, right? We all sort of live under implicit promises that we'll be nice to each other, that we treat each other like decent human beings. And that's why when somebody doesn't, we don't just feel sort of sad that they hurt us. We feel betrayed. We feel like they violated a contract, don't we? Because there is an implicit promise that as human beings, we'll just be decent to each other. That's what we should be as human beings. Now, we all know we're not great at that, okay? But, but that implicit promise is there just by nature of who we are. You don't have to say to someone, well, I never said I'd be, you know. It's, a, it's not an excuse when someone is mean to you. If then they say, well, I never said I'd be nice to you, that doesn't count. You don't say, oh, well, then in that case, I guess it's okay. You lived up to your promise. It does change your expectations in the future, but we all have this implicit promise. And that's the first part of this verse, is this idea that this, this steward, when he does what he expects, is just refreshing. When you do meet someone who's kind and nice and decent, it, it bolsters your spirit. It encourages you. Second part of this is more specific, though. It says, one who boasts of gifts. So this isn't just an implicit promise. This is an explicit promise. This is somebody who says, I am going to do this for you, and then doesn't do it. And he says that that is even worse than not getting refreshment. That's like having a hope and an expectation of refreshment 
and then losing that. You know, picture this idea of clouds and wind without rain. Picture we're in a good place to understand the importance of this, right? You know, in, in, in the, the, the famine days, which we, the drought days, rather, which we're experiencing even now in New Mexico, you know, you, you, it just, it's hot and it's dusty and the wind blows and it's a warm wind and all that comes is dry dust in the wind. And then you look out and you see the, the dark clouds. And they're coming this way and they cover and you're like, this is awesome. And it starts to pick up and it starts to get that smell. The wind starts to blow and you think we're going to get rain. And then as happens sometimes in New Mexico, it goes away. And it's almost worse than if the clouds hadn't been there to begin with. Because you're like, it was coming. The refreshment was coming. Now imagine if you actually worked out in the fields all day. Imagine if you didn't have a refrigerator and an ice maker and, you know, bottled water that you could just go to. Imagine if you were dependent on that wind and that, that those clouds actually bringing rain. It's, it's destructive to your soul, right? It actually brings it down. It's demoralizing. So these idea of promises, both implicit and explicit, somehow we've been made as human beings that these matter, don't they? They matter to us. What are the expectations? We learn to adjust our expectations, and by the way, part of being healthy is doing that, right? When you learn that somebody in your life doesn't fulfill the implicit or explicit promises, you adjust those expectations, or you'll, you'll always be demoralized. <laughs> but they're important to us. I want to tell you a little story that happened to us this weekend about implicit promises. And, and I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to use the pulpit here to bash a particular company or anybody, so I'm not going to mention specific airline names, but I think we all know that through no fault of the airlines themselves, COVID broke the airlines. They're really struggling right now. Yeah, and, and they're really struggling. And I, so I think, but I want to share a little story, and not to pick on them, I actually want to share the story to prop up somebody who lived up to promise at the end, but I want to share with you a little bit of what happened. So give me just a moment. So my daughter, Lydia, went to uh, North Carolina for three weeks to live with a friend, to, to visit a friend. And it was her first flight, right? She's 17 years old, never done this before. First flight by herself. Uh, obviously, she flew from Ethiopia, but she was two and I was with her. Um, yeah. So this was her first flight by herself. So she's, she's in North Carolina. You know, the flight over there is fine. We were worried because of the way things are right now. It's just every, every time you get on a plane, it is a little bit, little bit iffy that you're going to get where your destination is supposed to be. And so on the way back, Saturday morning, she, um, her flight is at 6 in the morning, so she's at the airport at 4. So, of course, she calls us at 2 in the morning, um, our time, so that we can walk her through going through the process. There was a hiccup, which was not their fault, but she actually had to pay her luggage. She'd added some souvenirs to her luggage, and now it was overweight, so she had to pay some money there. So that was a little stressful, but she got through that. Uh, they got her luggage. She gets up to the gate. Everything's going fine. She boards the plane, and she sits there for two hours. Now, the implicit promise when you get on a plane is that you're going to fly, not sit on the tarmac. So it's demoralizing to everybody, right? Just discouraging and frustrating. And after two hours of sitting on the tarmac, they announced the flight's been canceled. So she gets off the flight, and here's where the implicit promise to me as her dad, here's where I start to see implicit promises not being kept. 
Nobody said, here's a 17-year-old, here's a youth, here's a minor. She doesn't know what to do. We're going to give her a hand. She just wandered the airport. Her phone is low on battery. She's breaking the implicit promise that she should have charged it, so I wouldn't worry about her. But her phone is low on battery. She's wandering the airport. We're having to talk her through how to find the right line, talk to someone at the desk so she can get her flight rebooked. Nobody did that. Nobody came to her. No agent, nobody came to her. Again, I'm not picking on anybody. I know staffing is, is crazy bad right now, and I'm sure that they just she just got missed in the shuffle. But the implicit promise from a parent with a child is, you don't lose my child in the shuffle, right? <laughs> so finally she gets up, she waits in line, she gets up to the desk. Uh, after a long time, the lines are just long. She gets up to the desk and the individual there says, well, the earliest we can get you on another flight is Monday. This was Saturday morning. Uh, she's a 17-year-old. She can maybe go back to her friend's house, but here it is, Monday. She pushed back. Eventually, he said, well, we can get you out Sunday morning after all. And what I'm going to do, and here he made an explicit promise, I'm going to route you around Chicago because Chicago was the problem. There was weather. There was issues in Chicago. He said, what we're going to do is we're going to route you through Texas instead. Shouldn't be any problem. So he gave her a flight. She's all set. She's upset, but everything's working out. She is able to go back home to her friend. She comes back Sunday morning. We start looking at the apps and the boarding passes they gave her, and they don't match. So the flight, one says that it's going to Chicago. The app says she's going to Chicago. The boarding pass says she's going to Dallas. Same flight number, same time. So we're already a little concerned about what, what is happening here. What does this mean? So we're kind of trying to figure it out, but I'm like, well, sometimes, you know, the boarding pass has an end destination, and you'll actually go through other places, but if she's actually going through Chicago, that's weird, because that, the goal, goal was not to do that. Turns out, when she gets to the, finally gets to the gate and, and, and talks to them about it, that yes, indeed, that's what's happening. She's actually on a flight, which is going to Chicago, where she will sit on the plane, uh, and then go to Houston, and then sit on the plane, and then go to Dallas, and then sit on, and then change planes, and come to Albuquerque. Fine, it's going to be basically uh, 12 hours of being in the airport in the airplane, but she'll be home. About five minutes before she boards the plane, she sends us a text. She says, I got this weird text. The text says, your flight's been canceled, but they're boarding the plane. So we're thinking, that's super weird. It says, click this link or call this number. I said, don't click the link. I don't know if this is a scam. It's so strange. I don't know what's happening here. So, and it didn't even say where it was going. It said, your flight from Charlotte's been canceled. So I thought, this is strange. So I said, if they board, just board. Get on the plane. So she boards. She gets on the plane. I decide to call the number. I'm really, you know, being being cagey. I'm like not giving them any information because I'm thinking it's a scam, really sophisticated scam because it sounds a lot like the airlines. Well, it is the airlines. It wasn't a scam. And I, I finally open up and I'm like, okay, this is my daughter. She's just boarded the plane. You're telling me the flight's canceled. I don't understand. She's sitting on the plane. She said, the issue is it's the leg from Houston to Dallas, which has been canceled. But she can still get to Chicago. Or no, from Chicago to Houston, which has been canceled, but she can still get to Chicago. Said, so you're telling me she's going to get stranded in Chicago, which is much worse than getting stranded in North Carolina, where she has a friend. She's 17 years old. Are you telling me I should get her off the plane now? She says, yes, right now. So I'm still on the phone with, with the agent. Anne's on the phone with our daughter. She's like, you got to get off the plane. My four 17-year-old, I don't know if any of you have had 17-year-old girls, but they like being the center of attention when they want to be. <laughs> and not when they're 
and not when they don't want to be. So here we are, here we are telling her, you have to get off the plane. You have to stand up and tell the agents I have to get off this plane right now. Which I don't, I, even for me, I'm like, that's just a weird move, right? That just feels weird. I, I joked with her she should pull a Final Destination thing, if any of you seen the movie, and just claim, I've seen it, it's going to crash, but she didn't want to do that. It's probably a good thing she didn't. Anyway, so she... She does it, though, because we're like, you, you're going to get stuck in Chicago. She's like, I don't want to get stuck in Chicago. So she gets up. We can hear her, like, because she's on speakerphone. We can hear her, like, arguing with the attendants. They're like, what's going on? What are you doing? She's like, I have to get off the plane. My parents are telling me to get off the plane. They're like, it'll be okay. Just stay on the plane. She's like, no, they're telling me I have to get off. They're like, we're about to leave. You can't get off. She's like, I have to get off. And it's like, put them on the phone. She's like telling them, just put the agent on the phone. We'll explain it. Eventually, they just open the door. They let her out because I assume at some point it's just weird if you don't. She gets out. She's talking to them. Finally, an agent comes on the line with me and says, oh, the, the other agent I'm talking to now says, so I'm on with this first agent. And she says, okay, she's off the plane. That's great. Now it's in their hands. They own it. I can't do anything. I can't make reservations. I can't change the flight. They own the records. It's just the way it works. So she says, but you're in good hands now. Goodbye. Hang up with her. So now she's off the plane. She's talking to the desk agent. The desk agent gets on the phone with me and says, and says, it's all a mistake. It's all a misunderstanding. The agent that spoke to you doesn't understand. The reality is that this flight, the flight from Chicago to Houston was canceled, but we're just skipping it and going straight from Chicago to Dallas. So I thought, well, that's fine. The agent told us to get her off, but you're telling me, I just need to know my daughter will not get stuck in Chicago. I need that promise. She says to me, that will not happen. She will not get stuck in Chicago. And I understand she was very nice. Give her 100% credit. She wasn't like you stupid parents who pulled your kid off the plane. She was very nice. She was like, I understand. We're going to take care of her. We're going to put her back on the plane. So they put her back on the plane. We're like, okay, great. Now we can go to sleep for a couple hours because whatever happens, it's going to be a couple hours. But about 15 minutes later, Lydia calls us. Was it five? Five minutes later, Lydia calls us. She says, don't panic, but they took me back off the plane. <laughs> Why did they take you off the plane? Because they realized I was going to get stuck in Chicago. So I talked to the desk agent again, and she says, yeah, she says, here's the thing. I started thinking after you got off, after I talked to you, and I thought, I do not, I just made a promise. I do not want this gal stuck in Chicago. I wouldn't want my little baby, she said, stuck in Chicago. It's a certain, certain parents can connect over the ideas of little babies, and I'm sure her little baby is also 17 years old. I'll just throw that in. I wouldn't want my little baby stuck, she says in Chicago. She says, and when I looked, she says, I don't, they were claiming it was the other agent that I'd spoken to on the phone. To be honest, I have no idea what happened. But what she said was the reservation switched and she has no boarding pass anymore from Chicago to anywhere. And because they pulled her off the flight, they've already put a standby person in her seat. So now she has no flight anywhere. Lots of implicit promises were broken here. <laughs> A few explicit ones. 
clouds without rain, right? Clouds without rain. Hope upon hope upon hope. She was getting it home. Don't worry, the story doesn't end here. We'll come back to this later. But this is the clouds without rain moment. This is the moment when we realize we're in Albuquerque. We're in Rio Rancho. She's in Charlotte. And we can't do anything. And she can't get anywhere. I had already looked how long it would take to drive, and I started rethinking that plan. <laughs> 22 hours, in case you're curious. Oh, I would have done it. 22 hours. In fact, my brain says if I had done this yesterday, I'd be there now. Which is a little ambitious, by the way, because that means I wouldn't have stopped ever. But that's okay. It was pretty close. Clouds without rain. Promises are important, aren't they? We, we, we recognize our own limitations, and sometimes the only hope we have is the promise of other people. Sometimes we rely upon other people to do what we expect them to do, what we need them to do. And that's what this verse, Proverbs 25, 14, is about, is that promises matter. And when they're fulfilled, it's refreshing. It gives us a boost. We can move forward. And when they're not, you're stuck in Charlotte with no way home. And you start saying things like Lydia began to say with increasing conviction, I'm never getting home. And of course we joked about it. Yes, you live in the airport now. But you joke about that because you're like, yeah, I don't actually know how this doesn't end up being the truth. This is going to be one of those weird stories now. They're going to do a documentary on TV about this poor girl who got stuck in Charlotte, got a job and lived there the rest of her life. <laughs> what does that have to do with the foundations? Let's take a moment to review where we've been, and then we'll tie this together, all right? So here we're, here's where we've been. We talked about the first week in our foundation series. What did we talk about? Does anybody remember? The nature of God. Ding, ding, ding. Pastor's kid wins first go oh, <laughs> Where have we been? The nature of God. Right. And we talked about specifically the nature of God in, and part, one of the big things we talk about is holiness in all things. And we talked about what that means is holy doesn't just mean like pure, but it means other. He's different. He's completely different from us in very familiar things. So all the things we know of as good are familiar to us, but what makes them holy is that they're perfect in him. And that is different from anything we've encountered. It's sort of his perfection, his completeness in everything makes him completely other from us. We talked the second week about the nature second week about the nature of God in terms of the Trinity, that he is a relationship, that he is a community, that he is love, that he he understands and has for all of eternity been part of a fellowship. And again, understanding how one God can be a community is part of his otherness. It's unlike anything we've ever known in the universe. So all the analogies we try to make, they fall short because we don't have anything to compare with that, really. We talked about the nature of man. We talked about three, three aspects of the nature, and man here beats human. Should have put human. We talked about being human, that's what we talked about. And we talked about three aspects of humanity. The original glory, that we're made in God's image. The limitations, that even while we were made in God's image, we still had limitations. We couldn't be, that was part because God's otherness is unlimited and our original sin or our corruption, the fact that we fell and we became corrupted, and that we carry all three of these things in us today. 
that we still have the reflection of the original glory of God. It's still there underneath the corruption of that red paint that we talked about that's been drawn across the painting. The hand of the master is visible, but the painting's been ruined. And our limitations are still there. And then the week after that, we talked about the fall, kind of what led to the corruption, what led to the, the fact that we're no longer, that that original glory is spoiled, what led to that spoilage. And we talked about the fall, and we talked about that essentially, and this is hard for us, and some of you may still be wrestling with this, and if you are, go back and listen to the teaching, because I did a pretty decent job at it. Essentially, the issue is determining right and wrong for ourselves instead of trusting God. There's something in us that says it's wrong to let someone else determine what's right and wrong for us. And I, would, I will stipulate that that's true if you're speaking of human to human and you're past certain age. Let's admit it. If, as a kid, you're supposed to let your parents teach you what's right and wrong. But as we get older, we all recognize part of growing up is not letting other people tell you what's right and wrong. I get that. But the fact is that God is perfect in all of his ways. God is holy. He's completely good. He, so he's the only one who can look at any situation and know without flaw what goodness is at that moment. The rest of us do the best we can, but the best we can is really lousy. So that's what we talked about during the fall. That because of that, because we decided we knew right and wrong better than God, that led us into the situation now where that's how we think we're supposed to live, and we just are lousy at it. We do a terrible job. And God wants to bring us back into a relationship where we trust him more than ourselves. Scripture says this explicitly. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You could say that another way. Don't trust in your own idea of what's right and wrong. Trust God's, and he'll lead you in what's right. So, but this is where we are, right? This is where we've come to in the foundations that God is perfect. Man is made in his image, but has been corrupted by this, this attempt to become like God, to be, to be deciding for ourselves, the arbiter for our own decisions of what's right and wrong. And now the whole world is corrupt. The whole universe is cursed. And at that moment, the question becomes, now what? Now what? Right? There's really, there's three options. And I want you to think about this because this is where we were in, at, with, with Lydia, right? This is where we are. We're like, now what? Now everything's gone wrong and she's stuck in the airport. Now what? Well, there's three options. And there's three options with the universe. One option is no one fixes anything. Lydia lives in Charlotte. <laughs> right? She, her despair becomes the reality. I'm never getting home. And it becomes that Tom Hanks movie. Terminal. Thank you. It becomes terminal. One option, and that could be the case with the universe. Nobody fixes anything. It just entropy takes over, and it just spirals down into complete destruction, and that's that, and God moves on. That's an option. Another option is that we fix things. Well, I'll tell you the honest truth. This is one of the moments where my limitations as a dad just reared up its head. There wasn't anything I could do. The best I could do was drive out there, and I was ready to do that. But that's not a great solution for anybody. But I can't change it. I can't change the weather in Chicago. I can't make the airplane fly. I can't get someone to stand in for me and be that advocate that I need to be at the airport. No one is working as hard for her as I would, and I can't make it happen. So the same thing is true with God and the universe. We have tried for thousands and years, thousands and thousands of years of human history to fix things. 
What's our grade? How do you think we've done? I mean, I'm not completely pessimistic. I think America, I think humans have done amazing things. I think there have been some great improvements. I think, but think about the things that are great improvements. They're only improvements over the lousy things we were doing before. Right? I think it is a great improvement that we no longer, you routinely in the whole world treat people as property and, and enslave them. That's fantastic. But that's kind of minimal <laughs> when you talk about being decent humans. So yeah, there's progress, but progress from what? And even amidst all the progress, there's other ways in which we just seem to get worse and worse. It's like one step forward, two steps back. We're not, we're not fixing it, are we? We're not fixing it. We have moments. We have bright spots in history. Again, I am not a pessimist. I'm actually very optimistic. And we have these moments in history where there's beacons and we see what, what it could be like. And we see people that we call heroes and we call them heroes because they're people who for a moment figured out how to be people. But we're not fixing anything. And I think this has been a little bit of the realization that America's had, specifically, that I think deep down, kind of, we were living under this impression that, you know, the rest of the world still struggled with stuff, but in America we had conquered disease and violence and racism and, and injustice, and now we're realizing uh, we haven't conquered any of those things. I'm not saying we haven't made progress. And it was progress that Lydia got off the plane but she was still stuck in Charlotte. <laughs> Progress is not fixing things. So we didn't fix things, but there's a third option, right? One option is no one fixes anything. The other is we fix things. The third option, the one that I was really relying on was that the airline would fix things. They're there, I'm not. They're more in charge of the planes than I am. They're not in charge of the weather, I'll give them that. But they're in charge of the planes and my daughter's with them and I want them to fix things. And when we look at the universe, that's the third option is that God fixes things. And I want to be really clear. I want to, I want to, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. One is that there are philosophies when it comes to the world, when it comes to the universe, there are philosophies which say no one fixes things. There's, there's nihilism and there's, and there's other philosophies of despair, which just say, yeah, it is what it is. Make the best of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, or don't make the best of it because nothing has meaning and die. And no one fixes anything. That is a philosophy. Aside from it being not a really uh, enriching philosophy, it also happens to not be true, in my opinion. But there's a second option, a philosophy which is much more appealing to most of us, and that's that we'll fix things. We'll get it together. Maybe we'll do it politically. We'll do it psychologically. We'll do it, we'll do it spiritually. We'll do it in some way. Somebody somewhere will figure it out, and we'll fix it, and we'll all be better. The science will make the world better and better. We love science fiction. And it's pretty amazing because we, we keep trying to create these enduring science fiction stories like Star Trek where things get better and better and better. But as to, after time, we start to realize that even in those stories, things don't get better and better and better. No matter how hard we try because it doesn't become much of a story for one thing. But the other thing is we don't know what to do. And now look at the, look at the plethora of science fiction stories we have now. Computers taking over the world and cloning mistakes and Jurassic Park and... I mean, we're even recognizing science is not going to fix everything, is it? I thought, you know, mom and dad spent two nights. Uh, we haven't gotten a lot of sleep, by the way. So I'm going to have to listen to this later and see if my words are making sense. But um, yeah, there's a reason I'm sitting. 
we haven't we we haven't slept much for the last two nights because we've been trying for hours and hours and hours on the phone to fix things. And I thought of my dad. My dad flew a small airplane, and I know that well. He, he might be too old at this point, but when I got in a fix like this when I was younger, my dad would just get his airplane. He would fly out and he would pick me up, fly me home. And I remember thinking, I can't do that. I don't have those. I don't have an airplane. I don't have a license. I'm limited. But even my dad would have been limited. It's a long flight. It's a small airplane. <laughs> so I thought about driving. And I worked out the map. And I worked out the details. And it wasn't feasible. But here's the other thing I want to acknowledge. I think that most of the world feels like there's an implicit promise in God. If God is truly who he says he is, that he cares and he's powerful... There is this implicit promise that he should be fixing things. And I want to acknowledge that is correct. There's nothing wrong with that. When I meet unbelievers who say to me, yeah, the reason I'm not a Christian is because if God is everything he says he is, why is the world so bad? I say, that is a pretty reasonable question. That, that's okay. You're at least barking up the right tree, so to speak. Because you're saying, I can't fix it and it should be fixed. And God, if he cares and if he's powerful, he should fix it. And I say to you, you're right. God makes that implicit promise because he tells us he cares. And he, at least the God of Christianity does. And he tells us he's powerful enough to do it. So we're not actually wrong to think so any more than it was wrong for Ann and I to think that the airline needed to fix this. <laughs> and this is where our next foundational truth comes in because what's really cool about the foundational truths of Christianity is not just that we can rely on the implicit promise of God to fix things, but that remember in God, everything that is there is perfect and complete and defining. So he's not only loving, he's love. He's not only just, just, he's justice. He is the epitome of all those things we love. So if he is an implicit promise, then for God, it becomes explicit. And God makes it explicit. In his revelation, throughout scripture, he says over and over, I promise to fix things. It's interesting how many people think that scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, is about God trying to get people to fix things. And if that's how you read the Old Testament, you will never understand it, because that is completely the opposite of what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament and you both are about God's promise that I will fix things. And I just need you to let me do it, to trust me, rely on me, count on me. I will fix things. He promises outright he will fix it. And so it's not going to be a lot left here, but what I want to do is I just want to walk through briefly the promises he makes. Now, again, it's on every page of the Old Testament. We're not going to read all of the promises he makes. We're just going to give you an overview of what he says. And, and if you don't, if you have question about whether I'm making stuff up or not, I invite you to go read in the Old Testament and the New, and you will find that I'm not making any of this up. It starts at the moment of the fall. And it's, this is important for me because it tells us something about God, that even in the moment of discipline, in the moment of the curse, he begins right away to say, you messed up, I will fix it. From the very beginning. So it says this in Genesis 3, remember as we read through the fall, that they... They messed up. God says, what happened to you? They covered themselves with fig leaves, which is a terrible covering. Fig leaves are small and scratchy, 
That's why I think they actually ate a fig, because why else would you use fig leaves? And so they, they're, they're standing there. They're ashamed of their nakedness. God says, you shouldn't be worried about your nakedness anyway, but you are because you ate of the tree you shouldn't have. You've messed up everything. You now don't know what's right and what's wrong. You're very confused about it. You need to trust me. What happened? Eve says, or Adam says, it's, Eve, it's your fault, actually. Adam says, you gave me this woman. It's your fault. And secondarily hers. Eve says, well, it's the serpent's fault. And presumably, God, you put him here, too. So they both blame God and along the way blame other things. And God then curses the entire world. And he says, now things only come through pain. Blessing comes through pain. Life comes through pain. Life comes through death. It's a weird sort of scientific fact of our universe that this is the way things work. We take it as, a, as part of the cycle of life. It's not a, you could call it a cycle of death as easily as a cycle of life if you'd like. And there's nothing that says it should be that way except that it's the way it is. But scripture tells us it's only the way it is because it's broken. And so then he says this to the serpent after he says to Adam, now when you work in the garden, it'll be hard. And there will be weeds. You'll have to combat things in order to produce life. And he says to the woman, when you give children, it'll be hard. And we'll actually call it labor. He didn't say that, but kind of makes sense. And he said, and when you produce life, it'll be hard. And then he turns to the serpent and he says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. But then he says this. I'm not interested in dissecting the serpent story at the moment, but he says this. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It's as if what God is doing here, and I think this is such an important point and profound because he does this over and over forever, not only in scripture, but I think in our lives. What he does is he says to us, we live in a fallen world and things are broken. But I want you to know I'm going to fix it. And as a hint, as a clue that I'm going to fix it, one of the things that I want you to notice and watch is that for every heel strike of defeat, there will be a head crush of victory. So at this moment, it feels like all is lost, like the despair is here and the universe is wrecked forever. And God says, no, all the serpent can do is strike the heel of the one who will crush his head. And I think God wants to say to us, when you feel like you're being defeated, when you feel like the world is winning, when you feel like evil is conquering, remember that we serve a God who even in the midst of that defeat is only unfolding a larger victory. This is really the essence of grace. We're going to talk about grace more in a couple of weeks as we talk about the gospel. But the essence of grace isn't simply a consolation prize for living in a broken world. It isn't like God looks at us and says, ah, yeah, I know it's really hard, so here's a little bit of compassion for you. It isn't just that he's a little bit nicer to us. It isn't a consolation for the fact that everything's ruined. Grace is actually the power of God that in the midst of defeat, victory is there. And you see this throughout Scripture. You see this in the story of Noah. You see this in the story of all the judges. You see this in the story of King David. You see this over and over and over that God's grace, the reality of God's grace is that the full power of God will continue to advocate for us even in the midst of defeat. And it will be enough because he can fix it. He tells us that even when it appears, I think what we need to remember is for us, even when it appears to us that God is losing, 
We are asked to remember that God promises victory and justice and love and that goodness will overcome and not just barely, but definitively and mightily. One of the scriptures of the New Testament says good overcomes evil. And I think that verse alone is a challenge for most of us to believe. And I know that because I watch good people sink to evil to try to overcome evil time and time again. There's always a hint of the grace of God in the face of any evil we encounter if we will look for it. And if we see the hint, it speaks of a greater victory, not a lesser one. Note that the victory that he speaks of here is even going to come through the pain of childbirth. He just cursed childbirth, said it will be painful, but then he says it will be your offspring. So at the very beginning, right here in Genesis, God makes the first of many promises which become increasingly clearer as the Old Testament unfolds that there will be a human child who will be born, who will be the hero, who will fix everything. And it's important that we understand as we read the Old Testament, this is not Christians looking backwards at the Old Testament. We can see contemporary commentaries of rabbis and Jewish leaders and scholars and, 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 and even the writers themselves of the Old Testament who understood that God had promised a hero would come, a hero they called the Messiah. Messiah really just means hero. It means literally anointed one, chosen one. Think of all the stories you've read about a child who will be born, who will be the chosen one to save the universe. Those stories don't come from nowhere. And so the Hebrews, this is what they were looking for, and this is how they understood the Old Testament and in their day. So the idea of a hero who's going to come and fix things is a repeated promise. Consider also this, because this is, to me, a cool picture of the grace of God. Again, the hint, the promises of God peeking out in the midst of defeat. Just this short little verse says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So he came to them and he said, The fact that you're worried about your nakedness is completely wrong and shows that everything's messed up. But nonetheless, let me cover you. Let me cover your shame. And let me do it in a way far better than you did when you tried to fix it yourself with these scratchy little fig leaves. We can get into even the conversation of what it means that he had to kill an animal. That's sort of tragic. There'd been no death to this point. But it's all part of the promise of God. That his grace is going to cover us. This promise gets more explicit. It doesn't stop here. He continues to promise and he gets more and more explicit. It happens leading all the way up to Abraham. It happens to so many of the Old Testament characters. We have these promises to Noah is a big one. There's big promise to Noah. That the universe will be fixed. That God chooses not to wipe it out and start over. He chooses to prune it down and start over or and continue but then we get to abraham and he gets more explicit than he's been he says this abraham fell face down and god said to him as for me this is my covenant with you you will be the father of many nations no longer will you be called abram your name will be abraham for i've made you a father of many nations i will make you very fruitful i will make nations of you and kings will come from you I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. There's actually a lot here. 
And when I do uh, our Old Testament study, we break down these promises. And I'm not going to do that here as much, but I want you to understand several things. These promises are repeated for thousands of years, hundreds at least across the Old Testament, possibly thousands. And they're repeated over and over. And each time they're repeated, they're clarified. So rather than show you all of those and how they get clarified and break it down here, I'm just going to tell you the essence of these promises. You can go back and look them up if you want. But it is also clear that what is not explicit here in this text is explicit to the readers and the hearers of this text. The Hebrews understood very early on that the promise of Abraham having many nations and, and then blessing the other nations through his children of nations was the promise that that hero that was going to come through Eve is going to come from Abraham's lineage. So the Hebrews understood that Messiah was coming and Abraham was going to be the forefather of him. Now, there's a lot of interesting things you can argue about that because one in this promise is that God says all nations will come from Abraham. So whatever that means could go a long way. But nonetheless, there is this understanding that this promise itself refers to that hero as well. The Hebrews understood all these promises talking about the Hebrew hero who was going to come fix the world. You could argue that the prophets, you all know about the prophets. You may think the prophets are confusing and weird, and I will say they are. Some of them are extremely weird, but fascinating. They're all different personalities, and they did their things differently. One prophet did all his prophecies by questions. He just argued with God and let people listen to his arguments. Another prophet did a bunch of object lessons, like laying on his left side for months at a time. I mean, he just was all over the place. It's crazy. He was like a performance artist. Kid you not. Ezekiel was the performance artist of the Old Testament. And, and so they are weird. But when you boil it down, the prophets had two basic jobs. Every prophet had two basic messages. One of them was stop repeating the fall by continuing to decide, you know, better than God, what's right and wrong. And it's interesting, the prophets specifically and regularly hit on two things. One is stop oppressing each other for power and money. And instead, stop being nice to each other and lifting each other up. So kind of a social justice message. The other one is be sexually pure. Now, it's interesting because even today, there's a lot of argument among Christians about which is more important. Is it more right to be sexually pure or is it more right to be, un to be socially just? And what's fascinating is what are we doing? We're taking clear messages from God and trying to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong about them instead of simply saying they both seem to be really important to God. And why do the prophets keep reiterating those? I don't know. But there's another basic message they give. After saying, quit falling into idolatry, quit trying to decide what's right and wrong, quit repeating the fall, the other thing the prophets routinely say is, the hero is coming, he will fix it. No prophet ever says, start doing the right thing because you can fix the world. Every prophet says, start doing the right thing because you're killing each other and it's not good. And, you, and God wants you to still be here when the hero gets here to save you. <laughs> and you're, you're destroying yourselves. The hero's coming, and all the promises that have been made are dependent on upon him. There are so many promises we could put in this camp. But to take from Abraham's list, here's, here's the basic, I think, understandings that the Hebrews had. As you get up to the time of Jesus, these are the things they... There were, there were so many schisms among the Jewish world at the time of Jesus. You, you've all heard of Pharisees and Sadducees. That's just two of about 12 different groups and sects that existed at that point all fighting with each other, and yet they all would have probably agreed with these four promises. 
that God continued to make. Number one, that they were all going to receive citizenship in a perfect eternal kingdom of God. Most of them saw this as a earthly kingdom of God because they didn't know why wouldn't you, actually. <laughs> we, we get hard, we're hard on them, but why wouldn't you assume that's what God meant? That's what he had always meant till then. But they, they believed they were going to get citizenship in this a perfect eternal kingdom of God. And when I say perfect, it means like the prophets talked about, no oppression, no poverty, no, no people mistreating other people. It would be a perfect kingdom. It would be a utopia. Number two, cleansing, personal cleansing. Individually, people would be made new. They would be cleansed of their own wickedness and their own sin because how can we live in this eternal kingdom unless we're now decent people? He talks specifically about getting new hearts, their hearts being purified from the inside out. Atonement. Not only do they need to be cleansed, but there needs to be recompense for all the sin they've done, for all the evils that have been committed. And so there will be atonement for that. There will be payment for that, and God will pay for it. God will fix it. And then a renewed relationship with God. One of the big promises to Abraham, if you ask people, what promises does God make Abraham? A lot of times people will read through them and miss and miss what is clearly intended to be the linchpin of all the promises. And it's, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the promise. Renewed relationship with God, that they would once again be the, well, the people of God. So they're waiting for a hero, a hero who will come in and, and get rid of the oppressors in their lives, who will come in and make this perfect eternal kingdom of God and grant them citizenship, who will somehow cleanse the people and provide atonement and renew that relationship where they would say, we are the people of God. God actually routinely also promises that as he does this through the Israelites, his goal is to do this through the whole world. The prophets are actually surprisingly clear about that, given how little the Israelites seem to remember that. The point is, the Old Testament is full of these promises. Everything from the histories to the prophets to the Psalms to the wisdom literature, all pointing to the hero. And again, this is not us looking backwards and seeing it. This is how they read it at the time. It's clear from commentaries and discussions and arguments that this is how the Jews have seen their scripture for years and years. And not only their scriptures, but their ceremonies. They understood that the law and the sacrifices pointed ahead. Sometimes we think they were stupider than they were. They understood that killing a lamb did not cleanse them. But they also believed that cleansing a lamb made them faithful to God and God cleansed them. Don't want to fall over. That would be a bad moment. They understood that it was pointing to something bigger. They didn't understand exactly what, but they understood it was pointing ahead to a day when the hero would come. And when they forgot this, the prophets would remind them. They would say things to them like, do you think I'm hungry? Do you think I need to eat your bowls? No, I don't need any of your bowl. They understood when they also understood their ceremonies. Remember the Passover? It wasn't just looking back. It was looking back, but it wasn't just looking back to remember what God had done for them. It was also looking ahead. You know how we know that? One of the key moments in every Passover, even today, is that the youngest child will get up. He will go to the door. He will open it. There's an empty chair at the table, and the child will look, and the parents say in the recitation of the ceremony, is Elijah at the door? And the child will, presumably, unless Elijah's there, will say, no, Elijah's not there. And they say, maybe next year. Why are they waiting for Elijah? Because Elijah was supposed to be the person who would tell them when the Messiah was coming, when the hero was coming. This is why John the Baptist in the New Testament is called one who had the spirit of Elijah. 
So, so they were looking ahead in the Passover for the hero to come. They understood that the rescue from, from the Passover was just a hint of what was to come. Imagine living in a culture where your whole life is surrounded by this concept of your waiting and waiting for God to fulfill his promise, his explicit promise to fix the universe. You can probably imagine a lot of scenarios to being in that culture. Probably some people would give up, right? Well, it's been thousands of years. God hasn't fixed it. And now we're once again, as an Israelite, we're once again captive. <laughs> once again, we're being ruled by another country. And you would think, I guess it's not going to happen. Others would cling to it, right? They would, they would say, it's going to happen. And God continued to send prophets and stories. This is why the Old Testament exists. Because if you're living on a promise, you need to be reminded. If that promise hasn't been fulfilled yet, it helps to have the promiser continue to tell you it's still happening. I will keep this promise. And so the author of Hebrews in the New Testament points back to all these passages to help the Israelites understand that the promised hero has arrived and, he's, and, and that this promised hero is everything God said he would be and even better. And so he starts by saying this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. The very beginning of the book of Hebrews begins this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. Just a simple statement. He goes on to say something we'll pick up next week. But just I just want you to see here that the author of Hebrews begins his very academic intellect. I don't mean academic as an irrelevant. I mean very intellectual and research-oriented, right? He's going to look at the whole Old Testament in one sense. And he begins this very, this very intellectual pursuit by reminding them of the promise that God's been making forever. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. And then he follows through. He begins to talk about all these until the point where he gets up to chapter 11. And at the beginning of chapter 11, he says this about all the heroes of the Old Testament. He says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. He says, don't forget, you look at all the ancient Dave, King David and Solomon and Samson and, and, and Noah and Abraham and all of the heroes of the Old Testament. He says, don't be, don't be confused. They weren't commended because they were heroes in the sort of common sense of the word. Some of them did heroic things. Some of them didn't do heroic things. And all of them did unheroic things at times. And he says, as you look back at all these people, don't think they're being commended for what they did. They're being commended for clinging to the promise of God, period. When he talks about faith is confidence, what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about just this sort of idea of faith, that, you know, there's this weird idea about faith that sometimes people have in our current culture that faith just means believing in things you can't see. But that is also the definition of insanity, if I'm not mistaken. This is very specifically talking about believing in the, in the promise of God that you can't see, which may look like insanity to some people as well. But he says we've had this forever. And he says this is what the ancients were commended for. Then he gives a list, and a really long list, and still lacking, still not everybody. He gives a long list of all the people in the Old Testament, and he shows how what they did was they trusted in the promise of God, and that is why they are heroes. And at the end of that passage, he says this very interesting verse. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. <laughs> These are all people who clung to the promise and didn't see it fulfilled. 
since God had planned, but why did they not see it fulfilled? Because he says God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. The author of Hebrews is saying they clung to the promises of God so that, so that they could be made perfect with us as the promises revealed at this time in Jesus. I just wanted you to see, and hopefully we didn't get too much in the weeds there, but I just wanted you to see the promise itself is foundational to the Christian faith because it isn't like God just sort of adapted. I really think it's important we understand this. It isn't like things went wrong and God went, now what do I do? And went, well, we could try this. And then went, okay, here we are. Or as some people even say today that Jesus was killed and it wasn't part of the plan, but God, you know, like a good chess player just reacted to that. God is not a reactor. God had a plan from before the creation of the world. We'll talk about that plan in the next few weeks. But he had a plan and it was all a promise. And the promise was made and the promise was kept. And it's important to understand that part of the, the nature of God is his faithfulness. Think of all the songs we ta sang tonight which rely upon his faithfulness. We can count on him never forsaking us. Great is your faithfulness. From sort of beginning to end today, we hit that theme. The promise of God is foundational to understanding the gospel. Because the gospel is the fulfillment of that promise. And the promise is huge. And the promise is real. It's a foundational truth that the promise of God and the promised hero is also the same answer for all people everywhere at every time. This is what he says about the prophets. Their faith wasn't in something else. Even though they didn't know the name of Jesus, their faith was in the Messiah to come. And it's interesting that like them... It says that no one is saved except through the name of Jesus, but it doesn't actually say that everybody who is saved knows the name of Jesus. I don't want to get in the weeds on this either, but I want to be clear that the point is there is only one way to fix the universe, and it's Christ. And the, the question about our response and what we are supposed to do is a problem because we have confused people into thinking that the gospel is a message about our response and what we need to do to be fixed. But the gospel is not. The gospel is the promise of God and the fulfillment of it to fix us. I love the fact that when we go to God, we like to tell him how to fix us. And sometimes it's like, going, it's like we're going to a surgeon and instead of trusting the surgeon to do the work, we're going to tell him how to remove our appendix. And most of us, I dare say, as I look at this room, none of us are qualified to do that. It is interesting. Occasionally people will challenge me on the gospel and say that it's somehow unfair or exclusive to require that everyone receive the same promises in the same way, only through Christ. They say that you're excluding all those other people. I just, I think that's a really severe misunderstanding. And here's what I mean by that. The reality is that if we think of the kingdom of God as having multiple entrances, that you can come in through all sorts of different religions or whatever it may be, we forget that most often, and this, we should know this in America, 
separate but equal usually isn't. And the problem with wanting God to create different entrances is that that is exactly the way in which our world goes wrong in terms of elitism. In other words, if I let you visit the president of the United States, you know, through this public door, and I let other people visit the president of the United States by paying a lot of money, and I let other people visit the president of the United States because they're big celebrities, which this is how it happens, right? And I'm not saying this is a huge injustice in our world, but is it really, is that person any more worthwhile to meet the president than you are? Just because you don't have the money? Just because you, the thing is when we provide different entrances, usually what we're doing is we're making decisions about who's more worthy and who's not, and we're making it easier for some and less easy for others. I think the way we should understand Christ being the only way is that God said, I don't care who you are. I'm not biased. I'm not partial. I don't care what your creed. I don't care what your race. I don't care what your philosophy. I don't care what your color. I don't care what your gender. I don't care what your value and wealth is. I don't care what your social structure is. You don't get in except through this door. There's no special treatment except that we're all treated extremely specially. I actually think that's really important. Christianity is not exclusive. It's the most inclusive thing we've ever known, but we have such a hard time understanding that because nothing else in our experience is that inclusive. Everything else depends on talent, strength, riches, wealth, need, something. Something that gives you access that someone else doesn't have. And one of the points that Jesus makes over and over in the Gospels as he talks is, the access to the kingdom of heaven is different from anything you've ever experienced. The meek inherit the earth. The poor will be with God. No one gets better or worse treatment based upon birth or race. The truth is all of us need a hero, and we all need the same hero. I was also thinking of it this way. It's not like some of us get saved by Superman, and some of us are relegated to the Fantastic Four or Aquaman. Now, the new Aquaman's pretty cool, but the old Aquaman was pretty lame. Superman is still the coolest, and I'm not having that argument. I'm your pastor. I'm right. So Superman, but the point is, we all get the same hero, the complete, perfect hero. So here's the thing. At the moment I left Lydia in the airport, there was this desk agent, the one that we had spoken to was nice to us, put her on the plane and then had second thoughts and looked it up and pulled her off the plane. Iona became Lydia's airport mother. And she became a fierce tiger mother. And Iona lived up to both the implicit and the explicit promises that had been made. And Lydia tells us that she heard her on the phone. And she didn't even know who she was talking to, but she was giving somebody what for her. just a desk agent but she was telling them you cannot gate agent you you cannot do this to this young girl she cannot just be stranded here we need to get her on an airplane we need to get her home to her mama you know she was just going at it and and then she turns she hangs up she comes up the phone at one point and says how old are you how old are you how old are you sweetie she's like i'm 17 she's 17 we cannot <laughs> let her be sitting here in this airport so she she called us back she said look we're going to get her home. And she made an explicit promise. And she became an advocate for Lydia in that airport where nobody was an advocate for Lydia. And I'm not saying that anybody had to be. Again, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm applauding her. She became an advocate. She became 
a fierce advocate, and she stayed by Lydia's side. She wrangled the manager. I give her credit for this. She wrangled her manager. You know, she said, I'm going to go talk to the manager. Next thing we know, the manager is like, here, let's help. She wrangled him so effectively that what he ended up doing was putting her on a competitive airline at their cost. And he walked with her over. He, he took her to that airline. He got the boarding pass. He took her to the desk. He said, you sit here at the gate. He went and sure got the boarding pass printed out. He took it to their gate agent. He said, here's what's happening. Can you assure me you will get this child home? Because Iona's going to beat me if I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that last part happened, but... That's our God. He's that fierce advocate. He's that fierce answer. One of my very favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. It says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirits in our heart as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is a promise that God is making happen. Iona didn't just say, we're going to do our best. She didn't just say, I'm going to route you through this other place, come back tomorrow. She stuck with Lydia until Lydia got on a plane and is home, by the way. She did not have to stay in Charlotte. Ended up getting home earlier than she would have on the original plan, by the way. <laughs> I feel like if it came down to it, Iona would have met me halfway as I drove. That's the yes of Jesus. He's our advocate. He's our fierce defender. And when the serpent threatens to crush, to, to, to bite his heel or yours, Jesus crushes his head. When the evil looks like it's going to win, God reminds us, I am here. This was the big surprise of the Messiah for the Israelites, was that God didn't send a delegate. God came himself. It's fascinating to me, as we talked about the Trinity, that here in 2 Corinthians 1.20, we see them all. It says that Christ is the yes. He is the answer to all the promises. He is the hero. To come. He is the Messiah. It says God, and I think here he means God the Father in many ways. God makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. It is God who even makes the hero work for us or us compatible with God, Christ, however you want to look at it. And then it's the Spirit who is like the manager walking with us through it all, making sure that we don't get lost along the way. The gospel is not about what you must do to be saved. People ask Jesus that. But look carefully at his answers. The gospel is not about what you must do to be saved. The gospel is about Jesus being yes to the promises of God. That's why it's called good news. I just want to close. went a little longer than I thought I would, but I just want to close with one, one very, very brief uh, picture that I got from working at the Apple Store um, for years. And that's that occasionally people would come in and they would want magic things to happen on their devices. And sometimes those magic things could be done. 
but they didn't like the way I told them they could be done. So I'll give you a really classic example. This happened a lot. People would come in and they'd say, I have my phone. I really wish that when I took pictures on my phone, they would just show up on my computer, which, first of all, is just kind of an amazing thing to ask for, right? I mean, why? That's okay, cool. But it does happen. They've probably seen it happen. They probably know someone else where that happens. So they're like, I just wish when I took pictures on my phone that it would just show up on my computer. And I would say, you know what's cool? Apple's actually devised a way for that to work exactly like that. Every time you take a picture, it will show up on your computer just exactly like that. And they'll say, cool, what is it? And I'll say, well, it's called iCloud. And they say, oh, wait, 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 I don't want iCloud. And I'd say, okay, do you want pictures that you take on your phone to show up on your computer? <laughs> They'd say, yes. I said, well, you can plug them in with a wire then if you want. You can plug your phone in. Oh, I don't want to do that. I want it to happen wirelessly. So you want photos that you take on your phone to go somewhere wirelessly and then end up on your computer. Exactly, you got it. That's what iCloud does. Yeah, but I don't like that because it means my pictures are going somewhere wirelessly. <laughs> right. And, and this was very difficult to kind of work through with them because while I respected their, their concerns about privacy, I tried to allay them that iCloud is, oh, they always made me laugh too, that then they would say, I guess I'll just keep using Google Photos. And then I would say, they're much less secure than iCloud. What is your problem? But anyway, anyway, aside from all that, it was, it was a, an interesting experiment and a little frustrating to have them say, I want this thing to happen, and to say, there's a way that this happens, and then have them say, I don't want that, but I want this thing to happen. Sometimes that's how people respond to the Lord. Sometimes what people are describing they want, in all respects, the things they long for, the love, the belonging, the, the, the purpose, the... The, the security, the sense of the, the eternal life, forgiveness, acceptance, removal of guilt and shame, a new whatever it is, sometimes what people want is exactly what God is promising in Christ. And if you're listening out there and you're one of those people who is just holding back from accepting Christ as the answer, I, I want you to at least consider the possibility that the hiccup isn't God's failing to fulfill his promise, but it's your reluctance to give up the illusion that you can decide what's right and wrong. It's your discomfort with reversing the fall by recognizing that God knows what's right and wrong better than you and accepting your limitations and God's holiness. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit on our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups at a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.